That again. Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us together to hear your word spoken. Lord, I pray that as I open my mouth and the words come out, that they are the words of your spirit. Lord, that you guide me and that you guide the hearts and the ears and the the hearing of the word today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, be with us. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. So we are still traveling with our beloved Apostle Paul. And we are in the city of Ephesus, still. Paul actually spends a couple of years um, in Ephesus growing the church through God's grace and mercy. And there's a lot of things that happen in Ephesus. And I, it's, it's kind of an interesting place to be. Let's go ahead and read our passage of Scripture today, and then we'll, we'll get started. So we're in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest in Skevas were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, (laughs) but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This church at Ephesus, Ephesus is a unique town. Ephesus is the seat of evil. It is the seat of the occult, of magic, and evil practices in in Asia Minor. It is just that place. It is the place where God is most needed to be seen. You know, we have um, some places like that still in the world. And, it, and it's kind of a, an amazing thing when we see those places when there's a missionary show up or an evangelist show up, and we start to see the changes that go on in these places. To help us, though, understand this church at Ephesus a little bit, I'm going to jump forward about, oh, probably 40 years, and we're going to jump to the book of Revelation. 
Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus tells John to write, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we hear you know, this some 40 years later that the church is still growing in Ephesus, and they're doing some good things. They, they hate evil. They're, they're still preaching against evil. But much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at Jesus' time, they kind of forgot why they're doing it. You know, a lot of times we, as a church, we tend to get excited about doing things. And we get excited, and I, I know I'm going to get stuff thrown at me. We get excited about doing our shoeboxes. We get excited about the number of shoeboxes that we're going to do, and we get excited, but why are we doing it? And it's not about the shoebox. It's about what goes into the shoebox. And it's not about the thing that goes into the shoebox. It's about the love that goes into the shoebox because that's what we want to carry forward. And that is what the, this church at Ephesus had forgotten. And that's why... They were being warned. And we're going to see that through this story as we go back and we take apart this passage of Scripture in, in the book of Acts. And remember now, this whole, this area of Ephesus is, is not a pretty place. But there's a lot of beautiful people there. They just need to hear the Word of God. They need, need to be taught. They need to be evangelized. The first part of this passage of Scripture talks about miracles. And I think it's important for us to understand miracles. You know, we still have miracles happening today. I actually got to participate in a miracle this last week. We got home from, from our vacation, um, but on Thursday, while we were still in Minnesota, I got this text that said, hey, would you, would you come and talk to my class? again this year. I'm like, sure, be happy to. And by God's miracle, I was able to get into a public school and share one of our missions from our church and talk about what's going on. That's a miracle. Believe it or not, that is a miracle given our climate, 
on our, on our world. Maybe not as big a miracle in Coffeyville, Kansas, but when I've shared that with people in our, other, uh, in our mission who live in other places, they're like, there's no way we could get into a public school. Which is interesting because we're, we're, we're acquaintances with Alan Todd, and T- Alan Todd is the nephew of Don Todd, and um, Alan and his wife are missionaries now to Australia. And what they get to do in Australia is they get to take, this is a miracle, this is miraculous, this is wonderful. They get to go into the public schools, they take Bibles, they take Bible study materials, and they're given time each week in the public schools to preach Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. But they are given that time. They have to bring all their supplies in and then take them back out but they're given that block of time. Now, that's miraculous that in the public schools they allow that. The dark side of that is is they also allow that for Muslims and all those other religions too. But the thing is is that we can get in there and we can teach Jesus Christ and we can teach about what's going on. As we look at this passage of Scripture and and it's talking about the miracles that, that Paul is doing, Now, Paul's not doing the miracles. We need to remember that, that it's the power of God working through Paul that these miracles happen. There's really, kind of interesting, there's three times in the Bible when miracles are being done routinely. And and there's lots of miracles being done. Two of them are in the Old Testament. Two of these times are in the Old Testament. So we need to think about Moses. Think about the miracles that Moses performed. I mean, one of our songs was about one of the, Moses, the miracles that was performed through Moses at the Reed Sea when God parted it so that the Israelites could walk through it. One of the other miracles that happens that God does through Moses is he provides manna. And even though the people grumble about eating bread seven days a week, I don't mind eating bread seven days a week. I, I could really get into that. Uh, my blood sugar won't be happy, but I could really get into that. But the Israelites, they complained about it. And God did another miracle, even though they were complaining. And they weren't happy about that. He provided quail. And all the quail they could eat. You know, he, God also performs a miracle and keeps the, the Egyptians from catching up with the Israelites. I mean, you go back and you read in Genesis at that time of, in, in Exodus and in, in Numbers all the miracles that God was doing in the time of Moses. The second time in the Old Testament that we see so many miracles are the time of Elijah and Elisha. All oh, some amazing miracles, some fun stuff. It's not going to rain for three years. No, God, not here in Coffeyville. That was, yeah, back then. <laughs> we need rain. But God honored that miracle, and it wasn't raining, and it didn't rain there for three years to prove a point. And then Elijah taunted the God of Baal. 
and he built this, they had him build an altar, and they put their offerings on the altars, and, you know, he says, okay, call down, you know, burn up your, start your fire, and the, you know, of course, the, the gods of Baal, you know, they, the, the priests of Baal, they're, they're trying to get this fire started, they're trying to get things going on, and of course, Elijah just taunts them. Uh, you might need to yell a little louder. He's probably asleep. You, you need to wake him up. And they keep trying and they keep trying, and nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's and God's turn. And Elijah builds the altar and he puts the offering on there and then he fills it with water to make sure that they know that it's not a trick. And then he asks God to accept the offering. And God performs a miracle and sends down fire and not only burns up the water, burns up the offering and the altar. Then Elijah goes to a woman's house and says, I'm hungry, feed me. And she says, I don't have anything. I have just enough to, for me and my son. And he says, okay, fix me something first and then fix something for you. Anybody ever had a guest come to their house and say, you know what, you fix dinner for me first and fix something for you later and we'll make that work. But the woman obeys and God performs another miracle. For a long period of time, they never run out of the ingredients to bake a meal. And then one of the miracles that Elisha is uh, part of is oil. And he's traveling, and the woman says, I have but just a little bit of oil. And God tells Elisha, have her get all of the containers she can find. And we'll pour from your jar into these containers. And they get every container in the city, every vessel that they can find, every jug and everything. And they pour the water out, and they, they just keep pouring the oil. And they pour the oil. And finally, he said, bring more containers. And the helper said, there are none more. And the oil quit. Then we go to the New Testament. And there's another time of great miracles. And this time of great miracles is done by Jesus and his apostles. You know, we see lots and lots of wonderful miracles performed by our Lord and Savior. He provides sight to the blind. Now, I know that the miracle is that he provided physical sight to the blind, but he provided spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And that's what we want to see. We want to see that miracle. He brings the ability to walk to the lame. He brings the ability to them so that they can go spread the word. Because it's not about physically healing their legs so they can walk around. It's healing their legs so they can spread God's word. He provides correction to the malformed, to those who are unworthy or that feel or that have been made to feel that they don't belong. He fixes their deformities. Isn't that amazing? So God fixes our deformities to make us be able to do the things that he wants us to do. 
Jesus provides healing for every malady out there. And so do his apostles. He even gives them the ability to go do this, and he sends them out to perform miracles. And they do lots of miracles, and most of them aren't even named. They're just said, they go out and do it, because it's not about them. It's about the miracles, and it's about God providing the miracle for it to happen. You know, we, Paul spends two full year, more than two years with the folks at Ephesus, and he in this center of occultism. Now, we have had the opportunity over the last, since 2013, to go to Haiti. And I've told a lot of stories about Haiti, but I don't know that I've told this one. Carrie's not in here, unfortunately, because she would remember this story. Jane and I were talking about it. We were sharing it with a, a, a lady in, while we were in Minnesota. And it was our first trip to the village of Douin. Now, Douin is out in the middle of the rice paddies in Haiti. It's, a, it's not but about 45 minutes from where our campus is now. But Douin is a center of occultism. It's a center for witchcraft, and it's a center for voodoo. When we went into the church there, and the church at that time was really rough. It was a few poles and some, some used tin that made up the church, and there was a little bit of concrete poured for a stage. And their doors were just... Um, they didn't really look like doors. They were just a bunch of sticks stuck together with a piece of tin on them, and they pulled them together and wrapped a chain around them during the week. It's hot. It's miserable. And we're there to hand out shoeboxes. We get the shoeboxes handed out, but you can just feel something going on in the air. You can feel oppression. You can feel danger. And... I didn't feel it as much, and I don't know whether I was just not clued in, whether I wasn't listening to the Spirit, or whether God said, don't worry about it, and I just wasn't worrying about it. But Jane relates that she was afraid. She had a great deal of concern, and she was concerned for the children that were with us, because we had taken a couple of our kids from the orphanage back to, to that village, as well as we had a number of our church kids with us too, and they were all there. And Carrie will remember that as they went, just as soon as we got there, a woman rushed up to her with an infant, probably younger than Mesa, and thrust that child into Carrie's hands and then refused to take the child back. She was wanting Carrie to either take the child or wanted to make sure that she got something from Carrie, a shoebox or some gift. But we could, but it was just, it was a scary time because Carrie... You know, she was, what, maybe 16, 15, 16 years old? And Kira was 14 with us. And so, you know, it's just that feeling. And then as the crowd starts pushing in and pushing in, and they got tighter and tighter, and we're trying to get out of the church, back to the trucks to get back to where we were staying, and it just, you just, all of a sudden, it just got tighter, and it got harder to feel safe. The church is still there. It's not doing as well as it was back then. Uh, the, the pastor, um, Pastor Mark, I, I still think about him occasionally, but there was, 
I think that because of the darkness of that area, that he's struggling. Um, there was a, we had an opportunity, um, another mission came alongside of us. They donated a bunch of wood, and they had some people help them build church pews. And they were going to build a new school there. And so they were building all the church pews and the, and the um, benches for the school kids. And they built oh, 25 or 30 more than they needed. And they were all stacked up in the back of the church. And I remember going there and seeing this pile of things. I'm like, what are we going to do with all these? There's just quite a few of them there, and it's pretty incredible. And so we, as, as we're looking at this, it's like, okay. Well, the, the people that had donated the money for that and donated the, the materials and the time, they came and said, look, there's another church that, that we're helping with and that Car is helping with up in the mountains in a village of Tenev. Would you, we need to send some of those pews up there. And this is why I think that that village, that darkness was starting to creep into the church itself because the pastor said no. Those were built here by my people. They're my benches, and I'm not letting them go anywhere. He began to see things as his instead of God's. And that's one of the things that we can, that can begin to seep in as, these, as this darkness becomes part of our lives or comes in around us. We're still praying for miracles in Duan. Uh, I, we have seen voodoo parades and stuff when we've gone out there and tried to get back. And it's just, it's just a dark area. But the reason that God lets these miracles happen and the reason that he performs these miracles, and I mean, can you imagine just somebody walking into church and say, holding up a bandana and saying, Paul touched this, it's, it's got power, and we'd all kind of go, Okay. But God did that for a reason. He was allowing those things to happen. One, because he wants to show his compassion. You know, God has compassion for each and every one of us, regardless of how bad we've messed up. He has compassion on us, and he wants to show us compassion. That's one of the reasons for his miracles. Now, you think about all the miracles, of Je- all the healings of Jesus. It's also to show God's truth. God wants us to know that his truth, the truth of his creation, the truth of his power, and he wants us to know that. Look into each one of the miracles, and you'll see that there's always compassion and truth. The third part, and the third reason for these miracles are to establish credentials. Okay? Now, we started this journey with Paul several months ago, and we've got to remember now that when we started this journey with Paul, his credentials were pretty horrid. Remember his, his job? Remember Paul's job was to kill Christians, hunt them down, kill them, or put them in prison. So now God has to change his credentials. So God gives him the ability to perform miracles so that he establishes not only Paul's authority, but God's authority, and especially in Ephesus. I mean, we don't hear of any other place that these tokens are being used to perform miracles. But we need to have Paul have this 
credentials established. Let's go back to our scripture for a minute. I want to reread, starting in verse 16. Oh, excuse me, uh, verse 13. We're going to go to, are we there? Okay. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Skevas were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, But who are you? And the man in whom the spirit, in whom was the spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. For some of the young people in the room, This is going to be a little weird. There are demons. There are evil spirits. And they are not to be messed with. Okay? And and for some of the older young people in the room, spirits exist. There are evil spirits. They are not to be messed with. Anybody ever watched or caught? I probably watched. You guys probably don't watch those shows. But... um, there was a show on Sci-Fi Channel for a number of years called Ghost Hunters. Anybody remember that show? Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's this bunch of plumbers. Now, what authority do these guys have? But this is a bunch of plumbers who go around trying to find haunted houses and haunt, old haunted buildings and things like that. And they go into these things, and they've got, their little camp, they've got their little camcorders, and they've got some little things that measure um, energy ions in the air and so forth. And they're running around in these places going, if there's any spirits here, speak to me now. And I'm thinking, oh, you fool. <laughs> because do they really know what they're messing with? Do people who get started in occultism really understand what they're messing with? I don't think so. Because these things, this one demon overpowered seven men. In case you missed that, one demon overpowered seven men, stripped them naked, and beat them up, and cast them out into the street. Now, we might think about another demon-possessed person all the way back when Jesus was on his ministry, the the demoniac of Gerasene, or the Gerasene demoniac. Now, this one was, he was pretty impressive. No chain could bind him, or no number of chains could could bind him. No one could control him, and everyone was afraid of him. Now, remember that Jesus walked up to him and said, who are you? And the answer was legion. It wasn't just one demon. It was a bunch of demons. And if we remember that story, Jesus cast them out into the local pig farm, 
and then the pigs all jumped into the ocean and died. But people had tried to control him for years. People have tried to control demons. They've tried to take power over demons so that they can control them and make them do what they want. It doesn't work that way. The demon has power over you if you allow it. Um, go into antique shops and stuff and you see Ouija boards and things like that and you're like, I don't want to see that. Because people start messing with that stuff and they invite problems. They invite things into their life that are not not controllable. C.S. Lewis wrote the book Screwtape Letters. Anybody in here read the Screwtape Letters? Amazing book. Amazing book. It's about um, Uncle Screwtape who is talking to a younger demon and he's telling him how to control his patient, how to control his human and get him to do the things that they want him to do. I'm not going to tell you any more than that because I want you to go buy the book. Not that I'm getting any royalties because it's going to C.S. Lewis's family. But I want you to read the book because it's amazing. But they ask C.S. Lewis many times to write a sequel, to finish the story. C.S. Lewis refused. And when he refused, he wrote that it was, he would not write a sequel because it was all too easy to get into that role of Uncle Screwtape. It was all too easy to get into that dark place and he never felt so far from God as when he was writing the screw tape letters. Be careful. Be careful. Now, it's interesting, and I, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time giving the demons any more authority than they think they've got, because in Westside Christian Church, demons have no authority because we give all of our authority to Jesus Christ, and he has the authority and the power. Biskevas this high priest. It's interesting, as I was doing some research into him, trying to figure out where he was, they can't find him in the annals of the list of high priests. Josephus wrote of the Jewish wars and, and the Jewish history, and he has a master list of all of the Jewish high priests, and Skevas is not one of them. So it's, it's entirely possible that this guy is actually usurped that role for himself, and he's posing as a high priest. It's a little uncertain. Could be just a typo, or maybe Josephus missed one. We don't know, but they can't find him. The scholars cannot find him in the lists. So maybe he's self-promoted. So, so he's false. His sons haven't got a clue. They don't even know who they are. And, but the demons, they know who Jesus is. And they know who Paul is. But they don't know who these folks are. Which brings us to identity. What's our identity? I mean, Paul could have cast them out easily could cast the demon out easily because they recognized him and they recognized his authority through God because he'd been performing all these miracles. 
So this becomes a, a tale of identity. From mayhem, we have to look at the identity of the people who are involved. And we need to question our identity. Who was our identity in Christ? Who are you? That's the question they ask, that the demon asks, is, who are you? You ever been in one of those group meetings and you kind of don't know everybody in the meeting and you're sitting around the table and the moderator says, okay, we're going to go around the table and everybody introduce yourselves. Been in those meetings? And you're like, oh, what am I going to say? I'm kind of... You ever been in one of those and the, the, somebody in the group says, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. No? I've never been in one either. And I've never had, the, never had the thought at the moment to stand up when, they, when it comes to me to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I usually start out with, well, I'm a chemist. Uh, I'm, I'm the regulatory affairs manager. But that's what I do. That's not who I am. So who are you? Think about that question. Who are you? Now, we don't want to be, as um, Kyle Adelman wrote in his book, Not a Fan. We don't want to be fans. We just don't want to know about Jesus Christ. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ. I've got a a story that um, came to me as I was studying this and I was working on this. Um, John Weiss. Many years ago, we were at Ozark Christian College during uh, preaching and teaching week. John Weiss was there, and he spoke, and he was telling a story about his first mission trip, his first, what was going to be a long-term mission. It was going to be a couple of years, and believe it or not, he was going to Haiti. So he gets to Haiti, and it's close to the couple of weeks before Easter when they have carnival, and they, and they you know, they have this kind of Fat Tuesday thing that they do in New Orleans, only it's a lot darker. It's a lot uglier. Now, John has just recently graduated from Ozark Christian College, and, and he is all that in a bag of chips. I got, I got my d- diploma. I'm a Christian. I've got my education. I'm a graduate from Ozark Christian College, and I know who Jesus Christ is. And so he's walking the streets during Carnival. And he comes face to face with a voodoo priest. And, and according to hear him tell the story is hilarious because he's standing there and he's looking at this voodoo priest who's a little bit taller than him and he's like, uh, what? Um, and the voodoo priest grabs a, a beer bottle off the street, breaks it, and begins to eat the glass right there in front of John. And he's munching glass. He's not even bleeding, but he's chewing on the glass. John said, I never felt more afraid, ill-equipped, and unprepared as I did in that moment. Because he had not prepared himself for what was out there and for the evil that was could be. He survived. His family did well. And they they ended up having a, a pretty good mission down there. But that's that story about being unprepared and about not he thought he knew who he was, but he wasn't prepared. We need to grow in our identity to be prepared 
for who God wants us to be. We need to have that strength. We need to have that understanding so that when we get into those situations, we don't have an issue. And I could tell you the story of Nicodemus, the two different times that he tries to stand up for Jesus, but his who are you question, he's not quite as strong as he needs to be. Because remember, the first story he comes to, he comes to Jesus when? In the bright sunlight of the day in front of the square? No, he comes to Jesus at night. The second time we see Nicodemus, you know, we see Nicodemus twice. The second time we see him is at Jesus' trial. And Nicodemus stands up in front of the Sanhedrin and says, well, isn't it written in our rules that we should give the accused a time to talk? And the other priests of the Sanhedrin say, what, are you from Galilee too? And Nicodemus shuts up. He was unsure of who he was. He was unsure of how he was supposed to go through those things. We have to be careful about becoming, our, growing our identity in Christ. And there's really important reasons for doing that. Um, let's go to Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus answered them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a scary passage of Scripture. That is probably one of the scariest passages of Scripture is in the Bible, is to think that Jesus might not know who we are. Because we did things thinking that we were followers of Jesus, but really what we were were fans of Jesus. We knew him. We, we, we bought the jersey. What the, I'm a Jesus freak. So, I saw you at the bar the other night, and, well, you're sure not living it. I heard you on the phone. I mean, I, I had a guy at work come to me one time, and he claimed to be a Christian, and, and we had, we'd had some theological discussions, and we were out walking around the plant, and he said, see that thing over there? He said, we, fixed, we changed that yesterday. And I said... You've got to have a permit to do that. You have to change the permit to do that. And he says, if I don't get caught, it's not illegal. If I don't get caught, it's not wrong. Or you could be like the little kid with his hand in the cookie jar and gets caught and says, I got it for you. That's not right. It's not about, they forget who they are. Or they haven't learned who they are yet. Let's jump to Romans. And Paul's a busy guy. Paul writes this letter to the Romans, and we're going to go to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Now, if you don't have your Bibles or anything, you might want to make a mental note of this scripture, because this is the, this is the set of scriptures that will teach us how to be Christians. And it's, this is not a checklist to say, okay, I've done that, and I've done that, and I've done that. 
This is, how do I grow in my following of Jesus Christ? This is not, this is not an end of the checklist. This is, these are things I need to work on. Because I don't know that I've ever met any Christian that actually can go with it, other than maybe Paul, who could go down this list and say, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. But these are things that we need to look at that we can say, this is an area that I need to grow in. Let love be, and we'll, we'll probably not get through all these because I'm going to run out of time. Let's do the first couple. Let love be genuine. How many people love people genuinely? Just absolutely love on people genuinely. Not because they're going to get something out of it, or not because they're in public and they're going to, somebody's going to go, yeah, hey, that guy likes him or likes her. And you, you could tell that they're, friend, they're best friends. No, this is a genuine caring, a genuine love, a genuine worry about somebody else's psyche. You know, we, we have a church that goes out of its way to share love with other people. We were gone for, for 19 days. My mother-in-law never spent a day alone or bored. Thank you. You showed genuine love for her. And she loved it. She, that was, that, every day when Jane talked to her, she was like, well, I had so-and-so visit today and so-and-so visit, and they brought lunch, or they did this, and they did that. They worked on puzzles. She was excited because she felt genuinely cared for and genuinely loved by the people of this church. That's the, what Paul's talking about. That's a genuine love. And he says, abhor evil. Hold fast to what is good. How many of us always abhor evil? Sometimes we look, we, we see the movie that's got the anti-hero, and we're cheering for the anti-hero, and it's like, no, he's the bad guy. We have to abhor evil. We have to put that aside and get away from that completely. It's something to grow in. It's, something, it's, it's not a, okay, I do that. It's, I need to get better at it. Don't feel like you failed. Just feel like you need to grow. Because then, when somebody says, who are you, your hand will go up first, and you'll say, I'm a Christian. Actually, I get to say that because my middle name is Christian. But I can say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm a follower. Wouldn't that be cool? Next time you're in a meeting of people, and they say, well, who are you? Go go around and introduce yourself. If everybody in the room went... Uh, I'm not a believer, and you, now you've got your opportunity to evangelize. It's going to be scary. I promise you. I promise you it'll be scary. But it becomes who we are. I'm, and we're going to stop there because this list gets long, and we could go through. It, it's one whole sermon all on its own. Maybe a, maybe a four- or five-week Bible study. Right, class? But it's a grow list. And don't feel bad if you, don't, if you look at some of those and you think, ah, I can't do it. But the last part of this scripture, and we won't read it again because you've already read it, this is about majesty. This story is about majesty. It's, it's about miracles and who are we in Christ, and then it's about majesty. Oh, my, is it about majesty. 
God just writes this story across the skies. Do you know that 50,000 pieces of silver, whether you call them drachmas or whether you call them um, denarii or whether they're shekels, if it's just 50,000 denarii or 50,000 drachma, that's 137 years worth of wages that these people were willing to give up to follow God. Could you, could you, would, would you give up 137 years of wages and follow God? Would you? Would you? That's a tough question. 137 years? I'm not even going to live that long. But collectively, they burned up 137 years of wages. That's how much these people decided they wanted to follow God. Remember that chapter in Revelation that we went and read where it said, you've forgotten how you loved me at the beginning? They still abhorred evil, but they had forgotten how much love they had, that they were willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. If that 50,000 pieces of silver is the shekel, which is what the value of the human life was, remember that from um, our friend Judas, then a shekel is worth three denarii. So it becomes 150,000 um, days of wage, days wages or 412 years if they were shekels. It doesn't get easier. It gets harder. But that's the majesty of God. That we, when we get to that point where we're willing to give up everything that we have and everybody, everything that we are and give that to God, then we become true followers. And the church will increase. That's the last verse in this passage of Scripture. And the church dwindled and went by the wayside. No, the church grew daily. It grew constantly. The church should be growing constantly by our example and because we are growing and we are changing. We've read in our, in our Bible study here the last few weeks, we, we went through um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we read through Jude last week. We studied through that. And one of the things that comes up in there is that faith our ability to trust God and our ability to do what God wants us to do, that our faith is an act of will. Okay? Faith is not something you get and it just kind of sits out there and you tap into it when you want to. No, having faith, following God, is an act of our will. We have to decide we're going to do it. We have to want to do it. We have to follow him. We have to put him first. And then the word can increase and prevail mightily. We don't want to lose sight of where we start. Because where we start is sometimes the best place that we were. Now, there are going to be valleys. We understand that. But if we have the willpower to, have, to follow our faith, then that valley Eh, it's a little shallower. It's not nearly as dark. It still might hurt. And it still might be scary. But we can get out of it. 
and we can rise above it through the power of Jesus Christ. So what's our decision? What's our decision point? This who we are has to be one of the most important things that we figure out. And we do it because we've seen God's miracles. We might even be participating in God's miracles. Pay attention for those. It's about miracles, mayhem, figuring out who we are, and then majesty. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your scriptures speak so mightily to each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you that you had your people write this down and and just share it with us. We thank you for their, their desire to do that. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Connor's going to come and lead us in our communion time. Well, it is kind of funny how, oh, sorry, kind of loud. How fun, uh, uh, it is just always amazing how God works working things together and uh you know when sean said this was the the passage you know that uh he was we you know we were two and he was preaching over this week and and so i was like oh man what you you talk about there about guys getting beat up by a demon and stuff and that seems kind of hopeless and uh so i you know thought about it and prayed about it and read about it and then did that again, and then the next day did that again, and wrote some thoughts down, but then scratched them out, and did that again, and I'm like, oh, God, I don't even know what to say. You know, what do, all I can do is, you know, read this, this passage and be, and be hopeless, and uh, I woke up this morning feeling hopeless, you know, this, and all of a sudden, uh, I mean, we were... We were at church here, and and I was like I was upstairs, and uh, I was, like all I can think of is being hopeless. And like maybe there's something to being hopeless, and uh, you know after after reading it, there's you see Paul doing these amazing things and God doing these amazing things through Paul, and uh, it's, it seems amazing, and you know. How I know, like, looking at this list, you know, like, boring what is evil and loving one another, it's good to, good reminder for me that, yeah, I still have lots of things to work on, because a lot of times I'll read stuff that Paul writes, and I'm like, this guy, all right, you know, he needs to tone it down a little, but, uh, man, how do you not, how, how can he not be kind of the way he is when God's doing these amazing things through him, you know, and, uh, anyhow, that's a side note, but, uh, the, um, you know, so Paul's doing these amazing things and these, you know, these other guys, whatever their motivation or whoever they came from, um, you know, their 
their dad, like, I thought it was interesting that, you know, there's no record of their dad even as a high priest and stuff, because I wondered that too. I'm like, are they even legitimate, you know? And, um, but regardless, they were trying to, um, to cast out these demons and were very unsuccessful. And it kind of makes me look at that and be like, oh, I don't want to do anything, you know, I don't even want, I'm not going to put myself out there and get beat up and humiliated and, uh, uh, you know, cast out into the street, but, but, uh, you know, I, I lose hope so easily, but God's not a God of hopelessness. And Roman, uh, Romans chapter 5 uh, right there, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that real quick. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And it was cooled down just a little more in that list of, uh, in the Romans 12 that Sean was reading from. Uh, Romans 12, the beginning of verse 12 says to rejoice in hope. And, you know, this morning it feels good to rejoice in hope that, uh, you know, I get caught up in on me and what I can do and and that's, uh, that's pretty hopeless when I'm just relying on me. I can ask my wife. But we, uh, we always have hope in Jesus Christ, you know, our Savior, our, the one who has reconciled us back to God. He, he poured out his blood and, sh- and sacrificed his body for our re- re- reconciliation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, coming here to this communion table restores my hope in that and the the times that look rough with you know it may look scary to to stand up or you see you see somebody like these seven sons who were not not successful in casting out this demon, whatever their whatever their background was, and um, or anything you know, and messing with the demon, and demons seem scary, and um, you know, like it, 
whatever, whatever it is that's bringing us to hopelessness is nothing compared to the freedom and the hope that we have in Jesus after his sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for um, just your son, for your sacrifice, for his sacrifice, God, for um, the blood that he has shed and uh, the hope that he gives us in uh, reuniting us with you and the path that he gives us um, back to you, God. Even while we were still sinners, there is hope. Even when we don't see it, there is hope that we... uh, we have hope for the future and um, in this life as well as eternity, God, uh, forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen.